Good morning again, First Baptist family. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, <clears throat> Romans chapter 6. It uh, is a good morning indeed. It is exciting to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I'll tell you, I have a naturally built-in air conditioning system now <clears throat> just to kind of keep cool. Uh, I'm, I might have my pastoral ministry uh, card revoked for a little bit at the seminary. I teach pastoral ministry, and, uh, and you know, they always tell you, and I even teach, you got to make sure you check everything, right? You dot every I, cross every T. Well, this morning, I did not check the waiters before I walked down into the baptistry. And lo and behold, there apparently was a large leak somewhere. <clears throat> so, um, so I am absolutely drenched from the waist down. <clears throat> the other rookie mistake was is I didn't bring any extra clothes because I had waiters. <clears throat> oh, well, at least my legs are cool. Romans chapter 6. There, there are a lot of promises in God's Word that give Christians a lot of hope. There's a lot of promises. I mean, we could start from Genesis to Revelation and find time and time again just promise after promise that really just gives us as believers his body, the, Christ, the, the body of Christ, just, just hope, right? The hope that we can, that we can face difficulty, hope that, that we can face trials and troubles, and, and, and hope that regardless of what comes our way, that ultimately we're going to see the presence of our Lord God Almighty. We'll be with him forever and ever. In fact, I think that's probably one of the, one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture, that we as believers will spend eternity in the presence of our Savior one day. We were there last week in Romans chapter 5. We learned that, that ultimately the sin of Adam led to the condemnation of us all. We know, as Scripture teaches us, that every one of us is deserving of God's wrath. Every one of us is deserving of separation from the Father forever and ever. But we saw, and we've been seeing all throughout the book of Romans, but especially last week, that, that even though the sin of Adam led to the condemnation of us all, there was, there was one who came and took our place. And through the obedient act of Jesus Christ, even though we're deserving of the wrath of God, we now, if we trust in Christ, we can be made right with the Heavenly Father that our lives can be restored, our relationship can be reconciled with a holy God who hates sin, yet still, amazingly, through His grace, loves sinners. So even though we're deserving of the wrath of God because we've inherited the condemnation of the sin of Adam, and, and we can't blame Adam because we keep living in that sin, it was through the beautiful, precious sacrifice of a spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we now have the promise of eternal life for all who trust in him. That's the summary of Romans chapter 5. That, that eternal life comes as a result of what Jesus did on the cross and not what we do. And all God's people said, the promise of eternal life completely depends on Christ and who he is and what he did for us in our place, not what we do. Yes, we have to trust in Christ through the providential hand of God. Looking down at us, God proved his love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Beautiful picture of the gospel. 
that God lavishes upon us his amazing grace. There's a problem still. There have been some in the day of Paul and even some in this day. Idea that we have sometimes referred to as antinomianism. Um, it, there's, this, there's, these, there's this idea, right, that if, that if we've received God's grace in the first place, we didn't do anything to deserve it, right? We, 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 we've never done anything to deserve the grace of God, but because, because he is rich in love and mercy and grace, he continues to extend grace to us. And so, you know what? We can, live like, like, we can live life like we want to. We, we can just continue to live a life characterized by sin because God is a God of grace. And, and, and though, even though we deserve his wrath, even, even when we sin now, if, if we've trusted in Jesus, we can still live a life filled with sin because God's going to continue to pour out more grace upon us. It was a thought that was prevalent in the day of Paul. And even though we may not admit to it a whole lot now can i tell you it's a thought that's prevalent in the church today we don't advertise it but let's just be honest have you have you ever wrestled with something you know that it's a sin you know that if you do it it's displeasing to god but but in your mind you rationalize well you know what i i can still do it because i know that even after i do it i can ask god to forgive me and he will we presume upon the grace of God. Now hear me, is God forgiving? Yes. But can we continue to live a life that is constantly characterized by sin in order that God might continue to lavish his grace upon us? Paul says, absolutely not. Church, this is one of those words that will hopefully slap you and me in the face. It's already kicked my tail this week. Romans chapter 6, let's begin reading in verse 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Paul jumping ahead of the argument. I know what you're thinking. We didn't deserve anything to receive God's love, mercy, and grace. We didn't do anything to deserve his salvation. He just lavishly poured out his grace upon us. So, so some of you right now might be thinking, I can continue to live in a life of sin because I know that God will continue to show me grace. Shall we continue to live in, live in sin so that grace may increase? Paul says, what? Absolutely not. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him for the death that he died he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, 
he lives to God, so you too, church, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that as we dig into your word this morning, that Lord, Lord, you would do a fresh work in us. Lord, I, I ask right now if there's anyone here this morning in this room or listening by way of live stream who's never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Lord, today would be the day they repent, they turn from their sins, and they cry out upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to receive salvation. Lord, that today would be the day they trust in you. But Lord, I also pray for the church. Lord, I pray for me. I pray for us as believers that, Lord, we, Lord, now knowing because of your grace and because we've received salvation and because we've been given a new life, Lord, I pray that each and every day that we would die to self, Lord, deny ourselves, and that, Lord, we would, Lord, we would continue to battle the sins that we can battle and run from the sins we must run from. And, Lord, ultimately, may we realize we live a life that no longer is characterized and controlled by the power of sin. Lord, help us to be a righteous people. Lord, help us to be a people who live life that models and reflects the righteousness, the righteousness of Christ himself. And help us to be a witness for a lost and dying world. Lord, teach us today how to be a people who are dying to live. And Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord. Amen. In Romans chapter 6, Paul here jumps ahead of the argument. And he says, basically, this, this simple truth that if, that if we can continue to live in life thinking that we can carry on in sin and presume upon the grace of God, then, then, then there's, there's, a, there's a big problem. There, there's a situation that is, that is in the life of the, of the believer. And, and really, we must check ourselves and ask God to check us and see if, 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 we, if one, we first and foremost have a true relationship with him. And, and, and then we continue to pray that God would search us and try us and know our anxious thoughts and see if there be any, any wicked way in us. And ultimately, lead us in his way everlasting. Paul, jumping ahead of the argument here in chapter 6, verse 1, what should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may multiply Paul's answer, absolutely not. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Paul says, no, absolutely, may it never be. How, how could anyone think such a thing? The, the very idea was absolutely repulsive to Paul. It was disgusting. He's like, you, you've experienced, you say you've actually tasted the grace of God, then, then how in the world could you even fathom consciously, repeatedly, on purpose, live in a life of sin and keep carrying on the same sin that God saved you from? How in the world can you continue to do these things and, and presume upon the grace of God if you've actually tasted it in the first place? Here's a truth. Now, this is a hard truth, and I'm just going to throw it up there, and, 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 and this is what Paul is saying, and then as we walk through the rest of this passage, we'll kind of see this unfold. Paul's arguing this. We who are alive in Christ, have died to sin. And it's inconceivable to think that we can live in habitual sin from which we were delivered by death. 
It's absolutely insane, Paul says. Now, let's just go ahead and, and address that, that big gorilla sitting in the room. Right? Obviously, as Christians, we, we're, we're able to commit many of the same sins we committed before salvation. We understand I mean, Paul says it in another writings. Paul admits of himself that right there, there, even in Paul's life, there were times where, where he was wrestling with this thorn in the flesh. There was something going on in Paul's life, and, and he was struggling where he even said, look, there are sometimes I do the very thing that I know that I shouldn't do. I don't want to do it, yet sometimes I still do it. Paul understands that there is always the presence of sin in this world. But as we unfold Romans chapter 6, we see that even though sin might be present around us, it doesn't have to be prevalent. Even though sin might be present around us, its power has been conquered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As believers, church, hear me, come in here real close. The power of sin has been conquered by our powerful Savior. So we have the ability, not in who we are and what we do, but we have the ability to run from sin. We have the ability to conquer sin because the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. He's leading us and he's guiding us. So yes, even though there's the presence of sin in our life, and even though we can still wrestle with it sometimes, Paul says it's absolutely crazy to think that, that perpetually living in sin is okay. John says something similar. First John chapter 3, verse 9, you'll see it. It says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. Now, in the context, there's important. Basically, what John is teaching is that word there, it, 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 when we talk about we can't live in sin, it's that habitual, that constant, repeatedly, over and over. If, if you say you've truly trusted in Christ, then, then we can't just continue with, without regard, without regret. We, we can't just continue to live in this sin over and over again and, and never, never feel remorse, never have that tension, never have that battle inside. If we say we've tasted of the grace of God, then we understand that we cannot presume upon it any longer. The rest of this text in Romans chapter 6 is an elaboration of this truth. And what Paul does is he uses a picture. He uses an, an analogy, the one we just did this morning. He uses this idea of baptism to, to really help us to understand exactly what it is that he's, that he's teaching us here in that hard truth. So to, in, order to, in order to understand that difficult truth, we need to understand there's three truths in the text that kind of unfold it. Here are those truths. Number one, if you're taking notes, baptism is our way of identifying with Christ's death and resurrection. Baptism is our way of how we actually identify, right? We identify with, with, the, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where do we see it? Thank you for asking. Pick up in verse 3. Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Hear him again, church. 
For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, Paul's not questioning anyone's salvation. He's just simply saying, if you've truly tasted the death of Christ, if you've been truly baptized into his death, then it's certain we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. What's Paul teaching? What Paul is telling us here is that obviously it begins with all Christians have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We've been permanently, I like to say it this way, we've been permanently immersed into him. When, when we trust in Jesus Christ, what that representation of, of, a, of a physical baptism is, is, is a spiritual reality. That when we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, our lives are permanently immersed into him, being made one with him. The scriptures all throughout the Bible teaches that whenever we trust in Jesus Christ, that we now are co-heirs with Jesus, right? We're, we're the ones who identify with him. All we, God shares the righteousness of Christ with us. We become a child of God. We, it's, it's amazing to think of God's amazing grace that when we trust in Jesus Christ, we're, we're spiritually immersed into the identity of Christ himself. So that, that from that point forward, Whenever God looks at us, he doesn't, he doesn't even look at our blemishes. He doesn't look at our stains. He doesn't look at our scars. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't judge us by our sins, past, present. And listen to me, this is where it really gets mind-blowing. Praise God even into the future. When God looks at us, what he sees is someone who's covered with the blood of Jesus. How is that possible? Because when we trust in Jesus, we're buried with him in baptism. And Paul says that we then, we're, uh, we're, we're immersed into Christ Jesus himself through his death and his burial. Paul was not teaching salvation by baptism. There are some who argue that and even point to this text, unfortunately. What, what Paul's doing is he's acknowledging that it's the outward identification of an inward reality. What is that? That faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is what brings us into a right relationship with God the Father. So he uses this picture of baptism as a way for us to identify with the death and burial of Christ. But then he doesn't stop there. Even in this text, what Paul does is he helps us understand that, again, the picture of baptism is this, that we're buried with him in baptism. What's the text say, church? That we're then raised to walk in newness of life. You see, the resurrection... Jesus' resurrection was the outcome of his death for the sacrifice for our sin. Hear me again. As, as Jesus' resurrection was the outcome of his death as the sacrifice for our sin, so now our righteousness in Christ should be the outcome of our death of sin in Christ. Because Jesus died for our sin, because he conquered the grave, because he conquered death, because he conquered sin, because he conquered the tomb, because he's guaranteed eternal life, we have all of that in Christ. Our lives now, what Paul argues, is this. We once walked in sin, loved it, cherished it, and we're constantly characterized by it. But when you trusted in Jesus Christ, 
baptism is the very picture of what happened at that moment. That the old self was dead and buried. And, and, and the penalty of our sin was placed on Christ himself. And that, that he literally died for the penalty of sin, was placed into a tomb. And praise God, three days later he arose. And now we, whenever we trust in Jesus Christ, we identify with all of that. His death, burial, and resurrection. Our old self is dead and now we've been raised to walk in newness of life. What is that? Our old life? It was once characterized by constant habitual sin that separated us from God the Father. Now, our new life should be characterized with the very righteousness of Christ. Church, hear me. <laughs> Let's just get real for a moment. This, this, is, this is where we get in trouble in a lot of places, especially in the U.S. today, when we preach something that I've referred to as easy believism. You want to be saved? Just pray a prayer. You want to be saved? Just walk an aisle. You want to be saved? Just get dunked in a pool of water. You want to be saved? Just go through these steps, A, B, C, and D. Do these things and, and then try to do more good than you do bad. Church, it's spoken from pulpits today. Hear me, it's a false gospel that is absolutely a man-centered view of what it means to receive eternal life. Paul says, look, salvation is easy and hard. Salvation has nothing to do with you and everything to do with you. <laughs> what, what, are you what in the world are you talking about, Paul? Salvation is a free gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. But there's a decision that must be made. There's a choice that we must make. Whenever we realize that because of our sins, we're separated from this loving God, we must call out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we must repent, confess our sins to him and, and re truly repent, literally turn away from those sins and place our very trust in Jesus Christ. And then we don't just ask him to be savior, but we, we understand that that moment he absolutely becomes our Lord. He is in control. Our lives are now in, in his hands and we'll do whatever it is that he calls us to do. We'll go wherever it is he calls us to go. We'll, we'll sacrifice whatever it is he calls us to sacrifice. Salvation is a free gift of God. It has nothing to do with you. But when you trust in Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, he deserves your all. When he's Savior, he is Lord. Not either or. So, we say we're raised to walk in newness of life. Our old life is dead. Behold, the new has come. And our life should characterize the very righteousness of Christ himself. So how, how in the world is that possible? That leads us, thank you for asking, because it leads us to the second truth of the text. Here's the second truth. This is what Paul's doing. He's helping us to understand that difficult truth at the beginning. That our body of sin has been destroyed. Hear me. Our body of sin has been destroyed. Where do we see it? Pick up in verse 6. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Look, I've already mentioned the truth that sin is still present in our lives. But the power of sin, the power of sin, it's been destroyed. Why? Because Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and mine. He didn't sin, yet he died on the cross for your sins and mine. And when he did that, he paid the penalty. And as a result of him paying that penalty, the very power of sin has been eliminated. Now hear me. Does it mean that our old self has been completely eliminated? Well, no. I mean, if you're breathing, we're talking, we're living, right? Flesh is still here. Some translations say that, um, if you notice there in verse 6, look at it closely. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. Some translations say done away with. The King, King James uses the word destroyed. Um, it it kind of can suggest the idea of, that the old self is annihilated. And really, I mean, I, I think it was just wrestling with how oh, that's the best way to describe it. Now, I like how the Holman Christian, how the Christian standard refers to this. It's, when, whenever our old self was put to death, then literally what he's saying there is the old self was rendered powerless. The old flesh, like our bodies. Look at it again. It says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. That word for rendered powerless, basically, it means to, to make something ineffective. Now, I'm going to try to use an illustration here. And listen, I, all illustrations break down at some point. But, but how, how can we explain the difference and even how theologians have had to, and those who've translated the Bible, there obviously is a wrestling here. What exactly is happening? Is, is our old body completely destroyed and eliminated or is it just rendered powerless? What does that look like? Well, I, I like to think about the effect of gravity on a book. Think, think about this for a second. Gra gravity could cause an unsupported book to fall completely to the ground, right? So I know this is the Word of God. Just bear with me, right? Gravity has an effect on a book. Watch this. Gravity pulls straight to the ground. What happens when we then take God's word, we take a book, and we set it on something, say like this pulpit, this stand? What's happening? You say, well, this is where the illustration breaks down. I mean, gravity's still pulling it, right? But at this moment, gravity cannot pull it all the way to the ground. Why? Because the power of this stand has, in a sense... I know this is not a physics lesson here. Again, this is where it breaks down. It's, it's, it, the power of this stand is stronger than the force of gravity trying to pull this book all the way to the ground. This is the best way that I can think I can kind of help us to understand. For the Christian, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God is a lot like this stand. And our sin nature is a lot like gravity. And so our sin nature is constantly pulling on us, right? It's constantly trying to pull us down. But 
Again, illustration. If, if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ and, and we've surrendered our, our lives to him, then at that moment, the Holy Spirit came to indwell in us. And, and at that very moment, the power of sin was conquered. It was, deli- it was broken, right? It, it was done away with so that now the very presence of God through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit is alive in us. And, and if, we, if we align our lives with Christ and, and his word and, and we align ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, then, then as our sin nature still reigns, its ugly head and tries to pull us back down, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, is canceling out the power of sin. Doesn't mean that sin is not around. Again, no, sin, sin is always around. As long as we're breathing, as long as we're eating, as long as we're living, as long as we're here on this earth, sin will forever be present. But praise God, the power of sin has been broken so that our body of sin and, and the flesh, when it tries to rear its ugly head, when, when, when it begins to show up and, and try to take over, we just hold up. Let, let's pray. Let's read God's word. Let's, let's fully rely upon, upon God. Let's fully rely upon, upon Christ. Let's fully rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit for the very purpose that he was given to us. We turn back to Christ. We see the power of sin in a sense is canceled out even in our lives today at this moment. So that Paul says as we mature as Christians, as we grow more like Christ, then then we simply become more aware of our own sin. So as we mature in our faith, instead instead of continuing to sin, as we mature and grow in our faith, then what God is doing is revealing further sins to us, deeper and darker sins. Sins that sometimes then that we're just that we've just been exposed to and we begin to, oh, that was good. And we begin to taste, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Holy Spirit. He's showing up. No, no, that's not right. The power of sin being broken, we become more aware of sin in our own lives because the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts. Paul says, as a believer, you can no longer be a slave to sin. That's what he does. He goes on, not going to read it, but from verse 15 all the way through, through verse 23, that's, that's the exact argument that he makes. You, you can no longer be a slave to sin. Why? Because if you've trusted in Christ, you're a slave to him. Leads us to the third and final truth. Here it is, church. The death of Christ was a death of all sin for all who trust in him. And that's good. That's the gospel. The death of Christ was a death of all sin for all who trust in him. Pick up in verse 8. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. So then death no longer rules over me. Death no longer rules over him. So then death no longer rules over you if you've trusted in Jesus. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You see, there's an assurance here, right? We've already acknowledged it in chapter 5, but we see it here. The text says that we will also live with him. Yeah, it applies to the Christian's ultimate and eternal presence with Jesus in heaven. But the context which focuses on holy living today at this very moment. 
Again, it, it suggests that Paul is speaking primarily about our living for him in righteousness, in this present life, at this very moment. Again, this is the way I like to say it. We're dying to live. We're dying to live today. Our hope for tomorrow is what reminds us that we must continue to die today. That every, each and every day we, we repent of our sins and we, we turn from them. We continue to focus on Christ and, and we die over and over again. We live for him. The beautiful promise is, even though we have to make a choice each and every day to continue to die to self and deny ourselves and take up our cross, follow after him, the sacrifice of Jesus happened once and it's good. Right? As it says there, Christ died to sin. How? Once for all. You see, Christ achieved a victory that will never need repeating. So his sacrifice is good. His sacrifice is final. His sacrifice is done. And it's through his sacrifice that we have life in God the Father. You see, there is life after death to sin. And that life is lived now. Not tomorrow, not in the future. Not holding off until he comes again. Not, not waiting till we live eternity in his presence. There is life in Christ. And that life is lived now. By being a life characterized with the very righteousness of Christ. So what was Paul's answer? How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? Shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? <laughs> may it never be. Absolutely not. Because God's grace forgives us of our sins. But then it also delivers us from our continued sinning. It, it also conquers the power of sin in the present so that we can repent of those sins, turn from those sins, continue to live for the glory of God. Paul ends this chapter with a beautiful verse. 623. For the wages of sin is death. We understand that. The penalty of our sin is death. But free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel church. And if we've experienced the power of the gospel, then we can continue to live a life that brings glory to God. And all that we think, all that we say, and all that we do today, right now, in the present. The power of sin has been broken. Again, not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of who Christ is. And what he offers to us, the power of sin even in our lives today is broken. So how are you living for Jesus? Are you living a life that still is characterized habitually, constantly by sin? I'd ask you to check deep inside and make sure you understand what it means to have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you have those sins that sometimes rear their ugly heads and you're constantly fighting and, and trying to repent and trying to turn from them, and you know what? That's okay. We're, we're all there. We're human. We're flesh. The flesh hasn't been destroyed. It's there. But the power 
has absolutely been destroyed. So what do you do? How are you following Christ? Are, are, how, are you, how are you dealing with that sin in your own life? Do you have accountability? Do you have mentors in your life? Are you reading God's word? Are you praying? Are you seeking his face? Are you putting up safeguards? Are you fighting sin where you can fight? Are you running from sin that you need to run from? I, I don't know where you are, church. I know where I am. I know what it is and what it looks like in my life. We're all there. But remember, the power of sin has been broken through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question is, how are we living for him today? Each and every day, we must continue to be dying, dying to sin so that we live today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your power. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, I pray right now as we enter in this time of commitment, that, Lord, if there's anyone here today who's never trusted you, that, Lord, today would be the day they surrender their hearts to you. Lord, I ask, Lord, as they've heard the truth of the gospel, that right now the Holy Spirit would begin to speak to their hearts, and that, Lord, they would understand that there's nothing in and of themselves that's deserving of your grace, but, Lord, you decided to send your son Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. And that the sacrifice of Christ is, is enough to, to, Lord, to cover the sins of the entire world. But, Lord, we know, according to your word, that it will only cover the sins of those who trust in him. So, Lord, if there's anyone today who's never trusted Christ, Lord, right now, today would be the day to surrender their lives to you. Lord, I also pray, though, for us as a church, that, Lord, we would no longer live lives that are characterized by sin. Lord, we would be reminded that the power of sin, it has been broken. The Lord, even though sin might be present around us, that the power of sin has been conquered through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. So that when we trust in Christ, we identify with him and our old self has been buried. And now we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Lord, I pray that you would do a fresh work in our lives. Lord, that each and every one of us, we'd not look to our right and our left, not look to in front of us or behind us, not, not look at the speck in our brother's eye and, and miss the log in our own. But Lord, we would look into our own hearts. and We would search our own selves Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would continue to point out sin in our life, that, Lord, we could repent of it, turn from it. We could fight the sins that we need to fight and flee from the sins we need to flee from. And that, Lord, ultimately, we would live a life that brings glory to you. Lord, I pray that for me. I pray that for us as individual believers. Lord, I pray that for us as First Baptist New Orleans. Lord, we would continue to live a life that brings glory to you, characterized by the righteousness of Christ in all that we think and all that we say and all that we do. Lord, we love you. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.